if you will, open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 9. We're continuing on through Acts chapter 9. We made it through the first nine verses last week, and we studied about this miraculous conversion of Saul, right? And, and I'm here to say, we look at Saul's life, and we see the radical change, and we're going to read more about that, and we can be blown away by the power of God to change one man's life and say, it's miraculous. But I'm here to tell you, anytime someone comes to put faith in Christ and they become a new creation in him, it's a miraculous thing. You and I are miracles in God's kingdom and what, what God's doing in us and done through us and continues to do so because we put his, our faith in Jesus. And we know that, that Saul, part of his radical changes, he, get, he becomes known as Paul the Apostle. He, and he has, he has he's given um, authorship of 14 of the New Testament books that we have in our Bible. And that fact that Saul became a follower of Jesus is a mind-blowing thing when we consider, as we've been reading, that he was actively pursuing the early church, persecuting them, chasing them down, looking to imprison uh, any person he came in contact with who was a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, Even those who fled Jerusalem to escape the persecution, we know that Paul pursued them. He obtained letters letters of permission from the high priest. He traveled, willing to travel 160 miles out of Israel to uh, uh, Syria uh, into Damascus, uh, where he said that he was going to arrest any man or woman who were of the way and bring them back to stand trial. But we know that it was on this road. Even with this, this desire to kill God's people, it was on this road to Damascus. It said in verse 1, if you can look there, while he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that Jesus lovingly revealed himself to Saul. And this encounter uh, that we read about, we know that Paul uh, was knocked to the ground by this great light, physically binded from that light that shone from heaven. Uh, more importantly, I think, is that his heart was exposed before the creator of the universe, his, and, 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 and his spiritual eyes were opened to the truth that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save the world from sin and death. And it was this encounter that would bring Paul to this place where he would surrender. And with humility and with obedience as an intention, he would ask the Lord the same question that I challenged us with last week as we were looking into this next year, this new year. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And as we continue to read on, we see in chapter 9 here that with Paul's conversion came this shock to the early church, as you can imagine, It was something difficult for them to believe that Paul wasn't the same man that he was. But yet it becomes quickly evident that he was transformed, that he had become new with his his encounter with Jesus. And speaking about becoming a new creation, Paul would later write to the church in Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, and say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He says, the old things have passed away. Behold. All things have become new. And Paul was a new creation. In the old life he had lived, passed away. And as Paul had been born again and spiritually alive, we know it was, and brought to spiritual life, we know that it was a result of him putting his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul no longer was on this mission to destroy those who followed Jesus. And he, we know, became a devout disciple. And he preached to others about that grace, mercy, and forgiveness that he had freely received. And when we look at Paul's writings through the 14 books of the New Testament that he is the author of, 
We see that over and over and over again. Um, he, he speaks of God's loving kindness as the motivation uh, that caused him to be devoted the rest of his life to following Jesus. And when we think about that, we know that it was um, even in the face of many beatings, imprisonments, and eventually his death. Faithful and devoted follower of Christ. And, and I look at it this way. Because, because Jesus had forgiven Paul and saved Paul, Paul was willing not just willing, he counted it a privilege to do whatever it was that God had asked him to do or God would continue to ask him to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? And when we remember what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has given to us and continues to give us and has stored up for us, guys, I think we'll count it a privilege too to do whatever God asks us to do. Paul encourages this in Romans chapter 1. This is how we closed last week. Verse Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, I call you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And, and he makes this conclusion with that call. He says, he's basically saying, think about it. It's your reasonable, it's our reasonable service. It's the rational thing for us to do. And not only is, is, is it a rational, a reasonable thing for us to give our lives to Jesus Christ. Guys, listen, you guys know this, but let's think about it. It's the best thing to do. Here's the reason why, because nothing in this life compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to serving him. Nothing, nothing compares to even telling others about Jesus and then having them come and, and be part of God's family to become new creations, to have their sins forgiven and to receive that hope of eternal life. And, and, and these are the eternal things that have the greatest value. In Philippians 3, um, there's, there's this discussion, this discourse about uh, knowing Jesus and, and how there's nothing greater. In verses 7 through 11, Paul writes and he says, he says, but what things were gained to me? Things that he had talked about previous to coming to the Lord. You know, we know he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He probably had wealth. He had some authority. He had some, some recognition. He said, and, and beyond all that, he said, those things, all of those things, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. He says, what he's saying is, even with Christ, when I experience a loss, something that the world looks at as a negative, he says, if it brings me to know Jesus more, then, then it's worth it. He says that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness which comes, which is from God by faith, that I may know him, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says, if by any means I may rise or attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying there's nothing better. Think about it. There's nothing in this life, Paul says, that is better than eternal life. And I know when we conceptualize that in our mind, we go, yeah. Nothing in this life is better than knowing Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who brings forgiveness and righteousness and knowing God the Father and the creator of all things in this intimate and personal way. Nothing is better. Nothing is better. 
And so as we go into this next section of Scripture and read about um, Paul's radically changed life, I pray that we, Father, would know you more. I pray that we would have the same heart as the Apostle Paul, where we look at the lives we have, the things we have, the world that we live in, and Lord, that we wouldn't sacrifice knowing you and the things of eternity for anything temporal of this life. Lord, that we would see um, truly how magnificent and wonderful your ways are and how you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read verse back in verse 8 real quick. We, we, we finished all the way to verse 9, but I want to I want to look at what it says here. In verse 8 it says, Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blinded by that light. But they, the, these were the men who were traveling with him, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Very maybe humbling and maybe even humiliating experience. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So think about it. When Paul this, 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 uh, had been knocked down, physically blinded, heart exposed, spiritual eyes open to the truth of who Jesus is Lord, he was now being led by his hand, helpless, probably a little afraid, and brought into the city of Damascus. And I think it's safe to say, I love it how, how God's ways are not our ways. I remember before I gave my life to Christ that I had plans for my life. I had, I had, I had this idea of what I was going to do, when I was going to do it, how I was going to do it. And then God intervened and he said, he said, my ways are not your ways, Sean. <laughs> my ways are better. My ways are high above yours. We're not going to do your way. And, 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 and I, I, I had to get to that place in my life where I'm like, okay, I don't want to do it my way anymore. Let's do it your way. My way is not working out. My way is full of death and destruction. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, right? But its end is death. And, and I think we all, in one way or another, came to realize that to be true. The only place was, was to find life was, was in Christ. But Sometimes it doesn't go the way that we expect. And I think Paul was on that path. When he left Jerusalem, what we read here in verses 8 and 9 was not what he was expecting. Yet it was, the, it was this wonderfully awesome, perfect place, God-ordained place, where God began to speak to Saul so that Saul would hear, and Saul began to, through God, begin to listen. Here, we read through prayer and fasting. What? To see what God would have him do. Lord, what do you want me to do? Remember, that was the question when confronted with, with who Jesus was. And I believe when God physically blinded Saul, not only was it a humbling thing, but it was an intentional thing that served the purpose of causing Paul to listen more intently to what God wanted to say to him. And, and the fact of the matter is, is we know this to be true, and you guys have heard this before, but when a person loses one of their physical senses, whether it's their sight, their hearing, their smell, um, or touch, the other senses that God's given us become more alert. There's a heightened sense of awareness that is built so that we may make up for what was lost. And certainly, I think this was the case. It was also true for Saul, who, who could not see now, who, it says, was made to sit in darkness for three days. And, and he didn't know it was going to be three days. He didn't know how long it was going to go on. A sense of uncertainty. He was there. Out, everything was out of his control. But remember, Paul had asked the question, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And I believe that God did not want Saul to miss out on hearing these things. So he took away his sight so that he may be fully intent on what the Lord wanted to say to him. 
that the Lord would eventually speak to him through this man named Ananias that we would read about in the rest of this text. So for a time, God took away Saul's sight. And I believe that God still works this way today, in this way today, as he's faithful. Think about what we've read and where we're going. But as he's faithful to remove the things from our lives that need to go away in order to get our attention so that we can hear better from him. I know that even for some of you who go to this church that, that like Saul here, God has allowed for some sort of physical affliction to enter into your life, to get your attention. He's used it in that way, like a knocking on the door to redirect your feet, to travel on a path that you now follow where you follow after him. God's used that. But here, even if it's not a physical thing, think about it. God's faithful. He's been faithful in my life, and I've talked to you, many of you about this as well. He's, he's been faithful in your life to remove other temporal things of this life that have no eternal value, that can be a distraction, right? He's removed them so that we might see Him better, that we might hear from him more clearly as he then return and return reveals eternal things to us and the fact of the matter is like it's like many of you i've i've prayed for god to work this way in my own life to intervene in my life lord i want to know you more i want to hear you more just take away these things but tell you the truth i've prayed that prayer more for others than i have for myself that God would intervene into the lives around me, right? And in, in doing so, we, we say things. You've done this before. We, we, we've asked God this. Lord, do whatever it takes to reach that person, right? Have we not done that? A spouse, a child, a mom, a dad, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a boss. Lord, do whatever it takes to reach that person and save them from this path of destruction that they're on. And when we prayed this, I think we're, we're really what we're doing is we're, we're asking for God in accordance to his wisdom and in, in accordance to his will to like strip away those temporal things, to remove those things of this life, even if it brings some kind of affliction or suffering in order that the eternal things might prevail, right? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus speaking to his disciples about the same kind of line of thinking. He says this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. And then Jesus says, says this, he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says this, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul or what will a man give in exchange for a soul and so this idea of the temporal or the eternal is what's weighing in the balance of of what what we pray and how we go forward and even in 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 the apostle paul's life now as he's he's in this crossroads and so in verse 16 we read that there was a certain disciple of damascus named ananias and and to him the lord said in a vision ananias and he, Ananias, said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his 
hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered and said, Lord, are you sure I'm the right Ananias? No, he didn't say that. But he said something like that. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's, he says in verse 14, and, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. God says, I got a plan for him. I will show him. And he says, I'll also show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So this begins with this, this odd statement. I want to I speak to it here just a little bit. So there was a certain disciple, a certain disciple at at Damascus named Ananias. And when I think about this situation, I think we can all understand why Ananias was a little bit hesitant, right? With the Lord's appearing and the message that he gave him and the request that he's asked of him. He was hesitant to do what God was asking. I mean, imagine being in Ananias' shoes, having God send you to go and pray for this man who, who had a known reputation, right, of putting Christians to death and was coming to your city. He knew. He knew beyond what was going on in Jerusalem. The news had traveled. Saul's on his way. And he's got letters. He knew. And he, and he knew that that was you. He knew that it was you, that he was coming to arrest you. He was coming to take you back to Jerusalem and to have you put to death. And if it was me, but I'm sure perhaps if it was you, at least for me, I'd be a little reluctant to God's sending. Even fearful of what might happen. If I went to Saul and, 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 and think it's, 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 it's easy for us to understand why Ananias was concerned and what was, was what God was asking him to do. However, being asked to move out of our comfort zone is a very normal thing when God calls us and sends us to love and share with those people around us. And if we have the courage and the faith to ask that question, Lord, what is it you want me to do? You need to know, you need to understand that comfort is going to be part of it, the removal of it. And that's such an important thing to point out because truthfully, guys, I can't think of any greater idol right now in the church in America than comfort. People would say it's materialism, but I think stacked on top of materialism, uh, at the base of it is comfort. We like to be comfortable, and I don't mean just a couch in our bedroom or our living room or, or our, our, our living room or the beds in, in our, in our, in our um, bedrooms. We want those things of comfort, but we like to be in a place of comfort. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And we will, we will elevate that to the place where we, we at times are, are factoring that into our equation of whether or not we will go and do what God wants us to do. Or even ask, God, what do you want me to do? It's like, as long as I can remain comfortable, right? And God will. He'll move us out of that place of comfort. He'll call us out of that place of comfort. And more often than not, God, hear this, God will call us to go to someone we really don't want to go to. And our initial response in those times can be like Ananias, who was basically saying to God, God, anybody but that person. I'll go to anybody but that person. 
And I suspect that God's choosing of Ananias, and, and, and hear this, this isn't a thus, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't what God's word says. I, want, I, want to, I just want to interject a little bit into it and cause us to think. I suspect that God's choosing of Ananias for this task was not random. Especially when we read here in verse 10 where it says, there was a certain disciple, right? I don't think it was, I don't think it was random. In where God was like casually looking down on Damascus one day and just said, well, there's one. There's one of my disciples and I guess I'll go and use him to go to Saul. I think that God was intentional. Very intentional. And we know that God is a God of order and he has a plan and he knows all things. And so we can discern that even though the text doesn't delineate that. But we can, we can, we can discern, I think, that God was intentional in choosing Ananias. And, and I think that even though our text doesn't say it, I believe that God called Ananias to this task because Ananias had already probably been talking to God and asking things like, hey, what can I do to build your kingdom, God? Or perhaps Ananias, who had already clearly heard about Saul, now coming to Damascus with these letters to arrest and, and have, have Christians brought back. Perhaps Ananias, I think maybe like many of us, was even praying for Saul. Or Bible, we know that Jesus says, do good to those who don't do any good to you. Pray for those who use you, who despitefully use you. And, and, and I would suspect, I think it makes sense to me, that Ananias was like, Saul's here. God, save him. God, do whatever it takes to save Saul. And if this was the case then the sending of Ananias, we can, we can conclude that it was an answer, right, to Ananias' prayer. But apparently Ananias hadn't considered that God would send him or that God would use him in Saul's life. And even, even though we don't know for sure about these speculations, and again, I want to know, I want you to know, they're speculations, it's not what God's Word says, but I mention them for consideration because what I've experienced in my own life is very similar to this. Like God has worked this way in my life over and over and over again. In that, in that God allows for me to see a need or a work of His that needs to be done. And as I pray uh, I, 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 for God to intervene, God, you know this work. God, you, you see this need, and, and I see it too. You made it known to me. As I pray for that, you know how He answers me? Usually, typically, it's by sending me or asking me to give to the need. In light of this, we should consider that maybe when God makes a need known to us or when God shows us a work that needs to be entered into His work that needs to be done, maybe we should consider that He's made it known to us because He's calling us to step up and step in. Ananias was aware at the very least, and God... God appeared to him and said, Ananias, it's time to step up and step in. And so, in light of it, I think our prayers, guys, shouldn't be, God, please provide for this need, or even provide someone else to do the work, but rather, our prayers should simply be, as Ananias answered the Lord here, Why, what did he say? Here I am, send me. Here I am. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 9, we're told this, it says that God, and this is a paraphrase, God is searching the whole earth. His eyes are searching to and fro, it says. The whole earth. 
looking for men and women who are willing and available to go and do what he asks and to go and do what he says to say. And, and this is the, the, the quote from that. It says, for he's looking for those who are loyal to him. Loyal to him. And when it comes to Ananias, we see that he was loyal to God. And Ananias obeyed and did what God asked by entering into the house where Saul was at and by laying his hands on him. And this blows my mind. This is a huge step of faith based upon what God had said had happened and what God said he was going to do. Because as Ananias lays hands on him and prays for him, he refers to Saul. Look ahead with me because we're going to read it in a minute. In verse 17, he refers to him as Brother Saul. Not you evil murderer with, in, with murderous thoughts in your heart. I know you got this letter. You're going to have to prove yourself to me. He goes in obedience and says, Brother Saul. Even though he had real concerns. And one of the things I want to point out is that God, God's call to send Ananias into this potentially dangerous situation, for me it examples this, this greater truth about ministry that's often forgot in which where this is the truth ministry always comes with sacrifice it comes with a cost and i point this out because we can say that we want to serve god who wants to serve god we say that you can raise your hand i want to see it who wants to serve god if you don't want to serve god keep your hand down yeah but the truth is we don't want to be treated like servants right we can say that we want to live for Jesus. Who wants to live for Jesus? I'm setting you up. Right? I'm like, I think I do. But here's the deal. We want to live for Jesus, but we don't want to die to ourselves. We want to serve, but we don't want to be treated like servants. We want to live for Jesus, but we don't want to die to ourselves. But the fact of the matter, guys, is this, is we can't serve without being a servant. And we cannot live for Jesus unless we die to ourselves. The Apostle Paul writing about this, I think from his first town experiences in Galatians 2.20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in Romans 14, he continues in the same line of thinking in another letter in chapter 14, verses 7 through 8. And he says, For none of us lives unto himself alone, and none of us dies unto himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the, the Lord. We belong to the Lord. And the point of this is to remind us and help us to understand that there's a cost. Let me reframe this. I know the word cost is in Scripture, but the idea behind it is more, made more true with this word. Investment. There's an investment that must be made when we do ministry. A cost, an investment with ministry. Here it is, the cost or the investment, and it's not... It's not all of this, but it is this, at the very least, the cost or investment of our time. And the older I get, I realize that's the most valuable thing I have on this earth, apart from my relationship with Christ. You can't get time back. Once it's gone, it's gone. And it's coming to an end. But God says, will you invest of that into my kingdom? Will you make the sacrifice? Will you pay 
of with what I've given you for this cause, for this purpose, for this purpose of our cost, of our investment, of our time. How about the cost or investment of our talents, the cost or investment of our money and our resources, and the cost, and this is, this is the one that can be the very hardest, because sometimes on the surface we can do all of these things, but if this last one isn't here, I don't think it really matters, because what we're told to do is, is, is in all of this to make an investment, a cost, or investment to spend of our heart, of our love, of our self, of our affection for others. And I believe we must be consciously aware of these things because if or when we seek to do ministry, to be a servant, to, to live for Christ, right, and serve the Lord, and if we don't have a willingness to sacrifice, to invest, or to pay the cost, this is what will happen. Every single time, guys, we will become bitter and resentful. And, and I say that because I know that to be true because I've experienced it. Where I've stepped into something and I've not counted the cost and I'm like, Ugh. I mean, I'm, I'm bitter towards God. I'm resentful towards God. I'm bitter to the people that, that are involved in the situation and resentful. And, and, and God tunes me up and we get it right. But, But I've seen it many times, not only in my life, in, in the lives of people around me too, as I've just been in ministry for many years by the Lord's blessing, but, but I've seen it often come. Here's, here's where I see it, and I think this is a pitfall that we need to be aware of. I see it come also after someone has been doing what God has called them to do for some time. In other words, they've entered into, we all like, we raise our hands. Yeah, I want to serve God, and I want to live for Jesus. And, and we enter into God's service with this understanding that it's going to come with a cost, with some kind of investment. But we, we like, we, 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 as we enter, we, we like, hypothetically or figuratively speaking, we like pull out our wallet, and we measure our willingness with our time, our talent, our resources, the, the pieces of our heart. And we go, I'm willing to give this much. I'm willing to invest this much. Or we go, God, that's all I got. It's all yours. And, and, and that, 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 I'll say this. Um, so so when, we, when we enter into ministry that way with this, this call to serve or this willingness to to give of our, 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 our life by dying to ourselves and living for Jesus, that willingness to spend or invest, guys, it can't be limited. And, and, and I've seen people do well for a while. I've even entered into different things well and, and spent what I thought I was willing to spend or spend, so to speak, what I thought God was asking for and, and then come to the end of that, come to the end of the willingness, Right? That God was then asking them to trust in him, to invest more. And, and because you come to the end of it, there's bitterness and resentment that creeps in. And this is something that we must constantly guard our hearts and minds against as we follow and serve and live for Jesus. Remember, Paul sums things up and he points it, he puts it into godly perspective by reminding us that as followers of Jesus, we don't live for ourselves, right? As followers of Jesus, we live for the Lord because he very simply says that we're not our own. We're his. We live for him. 
We have life only because of Him. And the bottom line is, is that bitterness and ministry are not compatible. Think about it. I think it's a very simple thought. But when we articulate it out, it helps understand things. Ministry and bitterness are not compatible because ministry and serving God, ministry and serving others requires compassion, right? Love, grace, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. And it requires us to give freely of ourselves to people, but to people like Saul. Those who just days prior may have been the ones who were seeking to do us harm. And God says, go to them. And we go, God, anyone but them. I wasn't, I wasn't, that wasn't on the list when we were praying here, God. And, and it doesn't have to be, it could be a, it can be a boss. It can be a boss who, you know, maybe you're in a toxic work environment and this guy is just not nice to you or this lady's not nice to you and they're making it difficult. And God says, go to them. Because you've been praying, God, whatever it takes. How about a spouse? I know some of you are in relationships with a husband or a wife who is an unbeliever and, and they're not loving you sacrificially as Christ loves the church or they're not respecting you like the Bible says that that should take place. And you pray, we pray, God, whatever it takes, save my spouse. And God says, okay, I'm going to use you. And you're like, anybody but me, don't you know what they were doing to me? How about an adult? Uh, how about a teenage kid? <laughs> your kid. How about your adult children? Some of you guys have had adult children that have walked away from the Lord. And, and, and they're not very affectionate. They're not very kind. They're not very respectful. And yet God, you pray, God, whatever it takes. And God says, okay, you. Do this. Keep doing this. Keep loving them sacrificially. Keep, keep investing. Keep being willing to, to pay the cost. And listen, Ananias could have said no, but he said yes. Why? Because he loved God and he trusted God's will for him that it was the best. And so in verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So God, through Ananias, right, he did this miraculous work of healing. He healed Paul of the physical blindness. But more importantly, he healed Saul spiritually. He was baptized. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the awesome things about ministry, guys, I'm telling you this, no matter where God calls you to invest, where God cause you to, to pay the cost, and whether it's in Sunday school or any kind of other service within the church, you know, men's ministry, children's ministry, women's ministry, the bridge, or into your, your world outside of the walls of this church, no matter where God calls you to do ministry, one of the most awesome things in that is, is having God use you for his glory, for his kingdom, and then us having the opportunity as a result of that to see this, to see people's lives restored, to see God do healing and forgiveness and restoration. And we know that, that God's desire, right? First Peter, that none should perish, that all should repent. What does that mean? God wants every person to be saved from hell and to inherit eternal life. But, but also we're told that he wants us, whom he saves, to have life more abundantly. Life more abundantly than the life that we had before we gave our lives to Him. 
In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, and Jesus entered the temple as he began to, to, or one of the synagogues there, before he began to, to, to uh, start his ministry, he re- says, he read from the book of, the Isaiah, book of Isaiah, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable you're the Lord. And I think we can conclude from that rightly that God wants to heal our broken hearts. He wants to set us free from the things of this life that, have, that has taken us captive. He wants to restore back to us the years that the locusts have eaten, meaning when we have sinned and we have caused destruction to ourselves and destruction to the lives around us, God says, let me fix that. I'm going to fix that. The things that have taken us captive, the things that are oppressing us, Life more abundantly. God's desire is to reconcile us unto him, but also to take away our fears, to take away our anxieties, to take away our depression, our despair, and to fill us, with, it says, with his hope, his joy, and his peace. And God wants to use people like us. Think about this. This is the amazing thing. Called into the ministry to be a part of his team, to, to take people like us to be his delivery men and women. And for these reasons, we're called to be servants and servers of these gifts from God, and ministers of reconciliation like Ananias was for God to Saul. Saul's life was changed by God, and Ananias was given this wonderful privilege of being a part of things that last for eternity. I want to be part of more of that. I want our church to be about that because there's nothing better. And so in verse 20, we read about this. Immediately it says, he, speaking of Saul, Paul preached the Christ, in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days... Were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, and their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Immediately, it says, immediately, Paul got his sight back. He was baptized, right, filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I, I, he's just like Johnny on the spot. Psh, here I am, going to the synagogue, telling and preaching Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God to the Jews, to the Hebrew people in Damascus. And, and we know that, that when Paul had left Jerusalem, right, he was, his intention was to go to these very same synagogues to arrest any Jew who had become a disciple of Jesus, bring them back to Jerusalem, and have them stand trial. And yet, because of the power, the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul was now standing in these very same synagogues as a disciple of Jesus, professing Jesus to be the Son of God. It's an amazing thing. And when we consider this radical, I would say 180 degree change of direction, we should understand this, a few things. Number one, there can be no other response. 
when a person puts their faith in Jesus, from someone who has met and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In fact, I dare say it should be a crime to keep the gospel message to ourselves. And at the very least, we know that not to share this life-changing good news message of God's plan of salvation, at the very least, is disobeying the last command that Jesus left his disciples with. And for those who have experienced the grace and forgiveness of God, we know that, that these are things that cannot be contained. They can't be contained. I, I, I was so excited last night. I don't know if I should say this. Probably I'm going to say it anyway. So you guys know I coach high school wrestling. We were on our way back from a, a wrestling tournament. And um, I, I have to be careful. They know I'm a pastor. And when I'm working for the school district, I exercise discretion. Um, but one of my, one of my wrestlers is, loves Jesus. And another wrestler was sitting in the front seat next to me. And like he's sitting in the back. And, and, and he just starts to talk, and I'm just listening, and, and the, the one student, he's actually in the way back, but he's hearing what's going on. He gets, he gets up out of his seatbelt, and he comes to the very front, and he's all, you know what? And he, he, just, he just couldn't contain it, and he began to talk to this other kid about Jesus, and about Jesus loved him, and how God loved him, and how his sins be forgiven, that, that nothing can stop, stop God's love in his life. I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, that's how it is. And Paul writes about that. He says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For I preach, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. It's not me. He says, For necessity is laid it upon me. It's necessary for me to do it. And he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And then Paul goes on in his second letter to the, 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 the Corinthian church, and he says that it's the love of God, and he uses his word, that compels me, moves me, forces me to proclaim how Jesus has died and died for all. And because Jesus died for all, we should no longer live for ourselves, Paul says, but live for Jesus who died and rose again. And we know that when Paul wrote this, he did so because he came to personally know how the gospel message is life-changing. And, and, and think about it. You ever received life-changing good news? Like if you won the lottery. I mean, that could be, good. Well, that could be bad news too. But life-changing good news. You know what? Uh, I can say it now. My, my daughter's pregnant with our second granddaughter. It's like, can I tell people yet? No. Can I tell people yet? No. She's like, I don't care if you tell people. I've been telling me no for months. But, I mean, that's life-changing good news. And it's like you can't contain it. And when you receive life-changing good news, you want to tell somebody. If you just come up and say, I just got life-changing good news. See ya. I mean, how silly is that? And there's no greater life-changing good news than I've been saved from hell. My sins have been forgiven. God loves me. I've been restored back to him. When I die, I'm going to heaven. And I become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Life-changing. Now, as we read about Paul sharing Jesus in the synagogues with the Hebrew people who would ultimately reject him and his testimony of Jesus, we should keep in mind when we look at Paul's life Paul would become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He would say, one born out of time, speaking about his apostleship. But his heart was always for his Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, at one point, Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. Basically, he says, God is my witness. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness of me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. And what Saul was saying simply is that he's had such a desire 
He had such a desire for the nation of Israel, for the Hebrew people, his Hebrew brothers and sisters to be saved. He said that he would give up his own citizenship in heaven if it meant their place to be found. But as it was, as it was once to him that we just read of here, Paul would quickly learn later that, and write about it, uh, uh, that, that the, he would say that the, the, the Jesus and the cross that he died upon is an offense to the Hebrew people. Paul knew it was once an offense to him. It was once an offense to us. And so escaping here over the city walls, fleeing for his life, is what Paul would receive when he preached Jesus to the Messiahs, or Jesus is the Messiah to the, to the Hebrew people. Yet, I love this. As we look at Paul's life as a whole, nothing would deter him. No persecution would deter him because he knew the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the grave. He knew it was good news. He knew it was the power of God unto salvation for those who were being saved. And so we wrap up with these verses, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried joining the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared them to him and now he had seen on how he had seen the Lord on the road and that that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus so he was with them in Jerusalem coming in and going out right and he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists but they attempted to kill him when the brethren found out they brought him to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus the coastal city to, to Tarsus, far away. And then, verse 31, the, church, the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Real quickly, I'm just going to end with this. It should be pointed out. So we're following a timeline of event. This is an historical account, but we don't get every detail. And sometimes, as we're reading through this, what seems to be just maybe days or weeks are, in fact, a time period of, of years that takes place. So after fleeing Damascus and before traveling to Jerusalem, th what we read here, so between verse 20, 24 and 26, there's three years that are unaccounted for. In fact, it's three years that, that Paul says he was in Arabia, right? And, and, and it was during this time that Jesus further revealed himself to Paul. And when we consider Paul's past persecution of the church, and that for three years, right, that he had been missing when he went to Arabia, it's understandable why Paul got the cold reception that he did from the Christians in Jerusalem when he returned. But Barnabas, right, the son of encouragement, who we were introduced to back in Acts chapter 4, many, many years prior to this when we first met him, he now stands up for Paul. And he was finally received by those who at one time tried, whom he had tried to imprison and put in death. Now, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, we read here that it says that Paul went in and out, verse 28, right? with them from Jerusalem, and he was going into the temple and preaching, and, and, and yet in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, when we read about this time that Paul had in Jerusalem after coming back from Arabia before going to Tarsus, all Paul had was 15 days, 15 days with the church, with the apostles, before the Jews, these Hellenists tried to kill him again. Corey, if you want to come up, we're, we're, we're about to finish, and so Paul, he was sent to Tarsus, 
And, and, and we don't know exactly how long it was, but we know it was somewhere between seven and ten years that Paul was waiting as God would further prepare him for his ministry to the Gentiles. Before Paul would return and go on his, his missionary journeys, we know that he had been with the Lord somewhere between 10 or 13 years as a believer, walking with the Lord, knowing, with, knowing the Lord, and then going on. And listen, Paul's life and eternal destiny, we see it was forever changed. And I want to wrap this around to where we began last week when we looked at the beginning of this chapter. I said, I said there are many people who know of Jesus, right? But they don't know Jesus. And knowing of Jesus, knowing of Jesus will never change you. But knowing Jesus will change you forever. Knowing Him will change you forever. And Paul's life in eternal destiny was changed forever, not because of what he knew, but because of who he had met, because of who he had come to know and continued to grow to know. And not only did Paul's conversion bring peace, we read here to the church, I think, I think we should see that it also brought peace into Paul's heart. Remember, we were told when we read a couple of weeks ago, Paul was like a wild, wounded animal seeking to destroy followers of Christ. But now, he was a man of peace. A man of peace who had been radically changed, so much so that he was willing to give his life away for the chance, for this chance to tell other people about the love, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness that he had received through his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that would be true for us, Lord, as we ponder this question this, this next year. Lord, what do you want us to do? Here we are. Send us. Lord, may we have a willingness, Father, to make the investment, to pay the cost, to go to whoever you send us to. And Lord, we do pray for, again for those who we've been praying for, Lord, that are in darkness, that are running from you, that have turned their back in you. God, we pray that you would do whatever it takes to save them. And Lord, that you would include us, Lord, in that process. In Jesus' name we pray.